0: I met my best friend, Anne, in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in
1: 1988, and she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme, these books are great. Now, now we're all grown stony brook welcome to second stony brook a podcast about the babysitter's club
2: today we're discussing book two claudia and the phantom phone calls so we're gonna go into our one sentence summaries about the book mine is claudia establishes her character as an artist who hates school likes mysteries love boys and hides candy <laughs> <laughs> of course candy made an early appearance okay
1: i'll go next Mine is middle school boy gets mistaken for serial robber in an effort to ask his crush to the school dance.
0: <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Uh, my, mine is a little more general this time. Spooky babysitting yields fun and intrigue for a quartet of friends.
1: No, and we're quartet. playing fast and loose with fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, you know what, I remembered really disliking this one and not thinking it was very good. And so maybe I was just pleasantly surprised. I went into it with low expectations, but I really enjoyed it. But did but, you
1: remember thinking it wasn't very good or did you remember thinking it was too scary?
0: Oh, I definitely also remember thinking it was too scary. Like, That's I, different
1: than boring.
0: <laughs> well, I, but I also, I, I think I remember both. Like I remember feeling like a, not a lot happened in it, but what did happen was too scary. Wait, wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist, kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar.
1: I'm a total individual and I like health food. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm Annie Chicala, a freelance writer a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And if you guys want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Um, so let's get started into episode two. Emily, there's a lot of talk about money and wealth in this book. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? So much capitalism. My gosh.
1: <laughs> I mean, we'll get to this at the end, but I cracked up that one of the last lines of the book is like, "Stacy cheers us to success. I'm like, okay, <laughs> cheers to success. I earned $14. Um, I thought it was really interesting that there's so much talk about how the neighborhood that the girls live in is not where the millionaires are and they're mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of Stony Brook to like this wealthy town where all these robberies are happening. Mercer, New uh, Hope. Mercer, <laughs> is that real? Is that a real yeah. town? Oh, I don't know. Good question. You know, really rich? I should have looked that up. Yeah. Uh, but I, what I thought was so interesting about it is that the girls, to me, seem to have been like socialized into that weird, like middle class... Sort of aspiration of something of some higher class, or like that, that phenomena where people think that they're actually more wealthy than they are, or something like that. That, like, even their, their part of their anxiety about the robber or the phantom caller coming to get them at their babysitting jobs or at their homes, like, taps in a little bit to that, that, that phenomena, I think, that middle class phenomena of like at this. Um, both imagining yourself as part of a wealthier class, but also a sort of aspiration to it, right? That like, if you're Uh a target, then you've achieved some sort of, you know, social status vis-a-vis wealth signifiers. And I was like, oh man, that, that, I mean, I guess it could Uh just be a spooky 12 year old thing, but there's a reading of it where like part of what makes it spooky is like this cultural um, Uh context for like what it means to be successful and what it means to be wealthy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was also just really interested. It, it was funny to me that, um, and also accurate that Stacy, as the New Yorker was the one who seemed to have a better understanding of wealth, like from the very beginning, she, um, in chapter two, they're talking about the Granville robbery and she's got some, some intel about why it would be them and what would happen. And, um, it, it seems like she's sort of the voice of the kind of like understanding old money and understanding Mm -hmm. where the millionaires live and where they don't live. And, um, you know, she's 12, like, (laughs) right? just like we were talking last week about how she wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be listening to the talking heads at 12. Um, I feel like she probably wouldn't have quite this much money understanding at 12, but maybe she would. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think about when you start noticing stuff like that in school,
1: you know, I feel like in my school, which was not wealthy and not in a not wealthy town, like people somehow seemed to know which families were poor. So like people have a sense of like young kids have a sense of poverty and as that it's something bad, I think really early because that's part of the kind of general cultural context that like being poor is somehow a reflection on your, you know, individual like moral status mm-hmm. but you're like that it's like bad morally mm-hmm. problematic to be poor and so I feel like kids you know you can't you've grown up with that background you're bound to have some sort of sense of that even if you're not 100 clear on like oh for sure know, the, the broader sort of landscape of it or scope of it
0: yeah I but think I that's definitely it's true for wealth as exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a different thing, like knowing who's poor versus knowing the difference between Granville old money over in right. New Hope versus, you know, the, right. I mean, where mean, are, are bound to be more expensive. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas like, uh, it's very clear that, you know, all the kids have their own rooms. They have, you know, the, you know, uh, ed slash elizabeth thomas Christie's mom is a, is a single mom and they have a house that's big enough that there's three different bedrooms for the kids and all this kind of stuff and so you know that they're they're not they're not none of them are poor but understanding the difference between you know kind of big old money and whatever it is you know wherever they are in the middle class i felt like was some nuanced stuff for stacy yeah
1: i was also um interested to see how much sort of, uh, not so much, it's just a little bit, but the kind of their relationship to the cops as as something that is safe and that they can trust mm-hmm. and protect them is like an interesting sort of signifier to the kind of whiteness of this this context absolutely and then, and then there's like at the end you know we can all sleep easy because the phantom's behind bars so like no sort of critical assessment of the carceral state or anything like that and i'm like oh this phantom operates in the dark and this like darkness lightness <laughs> juxtaposition mm-hmm. for you know the, how we render criminality i was like damn yeah we're, yeah. we're fully invested in the surveillance and carceral state in
0: these, in these books. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, super uncritical. It was really striking to me. I mean, we should back up probably and say a little bit more about the plot. Um, you know, so they're, they're babysitting, right. Um, and there's this phantom caller that's been robbing houses all around wherever they live in Connecticut, I'm assuming central. Um, and, uh, then they're, they're hoping that he gets caught. At one point, Marianne's dad doesn't want her to babysit anymore until he's caught. Um, and then, uh, spoiler alert, it turns out that many of the calls they've been receiving have been from that pest, Alan Gray, who's been bothering them forever. And what you're talking about this kind of, um, Support for the prison industrial complex, Emily, I felt like was most striking at the end when they catch Alan and then, um, you know, his punishment as a presumably white boy. They don't mention Alan's race, but they don't mention most people's race um, because they're going for whiteness as the default, I think, which probably most most uh, white young adult authors in 1986 were going for. Um, But Alan's punishment is, you know. Uh, what does it say? Is he in trouble? Asked Christy. No, we're just going to give him a lift home. On the way, we'll have a chat about privacy and the proper use of the telephone. He can Gray. consider this a warning. And I'm like, whoo. Alan, Alan did not get shot. Alan did not have other problems. He's just going to get a little talk about privacy and the proper use of the telephone. I don't know. Do you want him
2: to get more punishment? Like if you're reading this as a nine-year-old, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> Alan Gray. Got to <laughs> <problem. laughs> like, like what did you want to so
1: <laughs> but it is interesting that privacy is the sort of like thematic takeaway there it's like a very american like individualist kind of way of rendering like why it's inappropriate to you know steal someone's stuff or call them and hang up or whatever it's like an invasion of their property and privacy it's like a very i mean Again, lots of capitalism in this book. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah no, To your point, Anne. Though I yes, I mean, I suppose there was not another <laughs> reasonable punishment for Alan. Um, but I did, you know, the you cops guys they were celebrated betrayed. the
1: capture of the Phantom at their club meeting with soda, a big bag of potato chips, another of peanut M and M's. I assume another means a big bag and an apple and a package of crackers for Stacy. They're like, Yay! Prison. <laughs>
0: <laughs> someone's behind bars i don't yeah. i feel like you're I feel like you're soft on crime emily what what would you want what would you well, let's not talk about what the right punishment for alan is what would you want the punishment to be for the phantom i don't know nothing
1: okay. We still watch people they don't
0: need their jewels he
1: <laughs> probably is hungry
0: oh my god i would love if this book ended that way And then we (laughs) realize the phantom, as a victim of the capitalist system, really needs the money he was getting from the jewels. Redistribution of wealth, you know,
1: if those billionaires were being taxed properly, they wouldn't get robbed. Mm -hmm. And also, this
2: this person never hurt anyone.
1: Yeah, true. No one's dead. No one's injured. I don't know. I think they shouldn't be celebrating his him behind bars. They should start
2: like a GoFundMe or something,
0: right? A
2: release project campaign.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: So many boys in here.
0: Yeah, there's lots of boys. There's lots of boys.
2: Speaking of boys,
0: there are a lot of boys in this book.
2: And it's very clear that Claudia is established as someone who really likes boys because she talks about her love for her crush, Trevor Sanborn a lot and she's in, she announces to her friends at one point that she's in love mm-hmm. it is saying? a romantic name she's not wrong it is true <laughs> I love
1: when she says that Trevor Sanborn is a romantic name <laughs> say it three I, times fast
0: <laughs> I, maybe it's just imprinting from when I read this as a nine-year-old I can't hear it any other way he sounds like a heartthrob to me wait um, can you say it like you imagine her saying it Trevor Sandborn.
2: Hmm. I guess there's some romance there. Yeah, he is a poet. I would love to read this poetry he's writing.
0: It's probably <laughs> I wanna know the poem he out. wrote about Claudia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Anne, I feel like you should write a Trevor Sandborn poem right now. Um, okay, so Claudia Kishy
2: declares her love for Trevor Sandborn, who as me thinks has a dreamy name. Very
0: romantic. I just agree with Claudia.
2: Yeah. Um, he's also a poet. He belongs to the literary voice, a school club. Um, but first, what do you guys think Trevor Sanborn looks like? I, Cause I have like a mental image.
1: Uh, oh, like who would we cast to play him? Yeah. <laughs> just, like, I mean, it's
2: 1985. He's like kind of artsy. He's 13.
1: Yeah. I feel like he's a, do either of you guys watch Riverdale? Oh yeah.
2: No, Sorry. I feel like he's a, he's a Jughead, Cole Sprouse. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking like, like shaggy,
0: shaggy brown hair. Yeah. I was going to say he's got floppy hair before it was cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Probably wears maybe like a denim jacket with maybe
0: some pins, the bands he likes. Yeah. I think she says he has dark floppy hair, doesn't she? That's in my mind for sure. So I took the
2: liberty since, you know... At the end of the book, it turns out Claudia's love for him is required. Like he loves Claudia also and he asked her to the dance. So I wrote a haiku that Trevor (laughs) might've written about Claudia because he's very, you know, he's very open-minded. He likes other cultures. Um, He wanted to learn more about, you know, Claudia's, you know, Japanese background and learn this thing called haikus. Um, So here we go. Claudia Kishi. Milky White skin exotic eyes. I dream of thee.
3: Oh my <laughs> god
1: wait do we think he's savvy enough to know that she's japanese and not just asian (laughs) especially in
0: connecticut in 1986 yeah (laughs) oh my god that's really really good that was really good that was really good and i also picture claudia receiving it and how awkward it is like she'd be so excited that he wrote her a poem but then also so like she wouldn't, yeah, she wouldn't have the words to describe why she doesn't like being exoticized, but I think she wouldn't like it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just how she chastised Christy in <laughs> book yeah. one.
0: Yeah. You just oh, think I'm so exotic. Good. So good. So oh, my gosh. was a yeah. really good poem. was a really good poem, man. I this this don't know if we can recover sure. from that.
1: <laughs> I think, okay, I have a question. This sort of, I think, is a little bit of a question for... As me, if there's like a proper developmental like approach to this, but also just curious what you guys think. I thought that the, when the boys finally explain what's going on, they sounded too mature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, but twelve year old boy really has the wherewithal to like explain being shy in that in that savvy of a way. I don't know. I mean, Trevor more so. Obviously, Alan Gray gets caught, so he had like doing it at the behest of the police.
0: But right, well, but I think that that. That also pushes, you know, that's Trevor saying, like, you better get, you know, Alan telling Trevor, you better get this straightened out right away. Um, Basically, Alan gets caught by the police and is forced to be honest about what's happening because he's terrified, Um, again, because everyone respects the police and um, (laughs) wants to do what they say in this book. And then um, Trevor says, like, Alan told me he didn't say my name, but I had to, like, get this straight with you right away basically. So I think Trevor has some like runoff of, uh, you know, police state fear from Alan that motivates his behavior. I think in terms of just like saying directly how they feel, that's pretty rare for a 12 year old boy, but some of them do it. Uh Um, So yeah, it didn't strike me as like, you know, given that they had a reason and kind of a deadline, it didn't strike me as totally unrealistic.
1: I want to hear Trevor's poem about the police state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anne, can you can you work on that? Well, wow. Wait, let, what if Trevor goes out to be an abolitionist, anti-capitalist? What poems is he writing? <laughs> well, Emily, like, didn't you write a lot of poems about clouds? Yeah, yeah. That was before I learned about Marx. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> your childhood poetry wouldn't hold up to your current ideals. I understand. Wait,
1: I also, are we going to get I love the idea that what the babysitters club books are is just a really long spread out arc of rob the babysitting charge like unlearning his hatred for girls. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah he's better in this
2: book
1: yeah Uh, but it's still like his his signifier like especially girl babysitters like rob hates
0: girls (laughs) yeah wait but can we talk for a second about that scene so again jamie newton's cousins are here um this is in chapter 12 i thought there were a few things that were stood out to me in that one is that the newtons have two fridges, which seemed like another wealth signifier to me. When they've only got like a, a toddler and a baby, I'm like, why do you need two refrigerators? I don't understand. No, no I feel like it's um, a
1: suburban thing.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what I was wondering. I was like, is that a common suburban Connecticut thing? I mean, I would love two fridges, but it doesn't seem necessary. Um, yeah, I think it's really common. You have one okay. in the garage, but I don't okay. know. All the right. only people I know in Connecticut have big houses, so yeah. <laughs> and then but you know so we went on and on about how claudia was really effective in the last book taming the newton cousins with her differential reinforcement of calm behavior christy just out out threatens violence in this book (laughs) christy like you (laughs) christy like literally i was like whoa child abuse city i was like quite i mean it was a threat and she didn't do anything about it obviously um but there were a couple sort of questionable babysitting choices in this book that I was a little bit surprised by that. And then when Stacy's sitting for Charlotte Johansson, who was described like pages earlier as being super, super sensitive and is at this point in the series only seven years old. And they sit down to watch spook theater together, which just seems like a really questionable idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it works. Chrissy's threatened Threatening violence works, but I was it very, very much stood out to me. I was like, "Oh, this book would not be published now with the same threat." Like, yeah, like so much. Yeah, it
1: is interesting too. I think you get more in this book than the last one, like substantive treatment of like what it means to be a babysitter. (laughs) Like I was thinking of Josie and the Pussycats when they do that du jour means friendship bit, Uh, like babysitting means that's what I was like hearing.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of those and those keep going throughout the series. Like we're always on time. We always make sure to ask where the emergency numbers are. We all, you know, those kinds of things. So babysitting means call the cops. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Also, yeah. like, I didn't, I didn't babysit like you guys did, but I think Claudia is babysitting like, like a three-year-old and a one-year-old uh-huh. in one of her. Is that like normal for like a 13 year thirteen-year-old to be babysitting two very young children? I used to babysit infants a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah I did too.
2: I think, I think, I think you that know, yeah. I, I just can't see common. any of my friends with babies now hire someone that young to look after a baby. But if you oh,
0: think yeah, about well, I think it's that's totally a cultural shift though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's been a big cultural shift. Also, I think it's different, you know, you have to remember the Newtons like live on Bradford court. Like they grew, you know, Claudia has grown up around Mrs. Newton and was there probably when Jamie was born. Like, I think like some of our friends with younger kids will hire my older daughter, Keely next, you know, soon she's about to turn 12, but like, would a stranger hire her to watch their three and one year old? Probably not. But like people that have known her for a long time would. Um, I used to babysit our next door neighbors. They had an infant and then two little
1: kids when I was 12. But also my mom was always next door.
0: Yeah. So there's that too. Like they know Mimi's around. Mm -hmm. They know, you know, so it's kind of the network of the community as opposed to she's totally on her own. But it is
1: interesting though that like they, I think that's a cooler way to think about care work and like emotional labor, right. That like, we're this big community and we fill in for each other and we raise each other's children is like, a uh, not the kind of typical way that, that they think about babysitting as this sort of like measure of, of entrepreneurial success. So there's like a, a, some, they kind of run up against each other sometimes. Uh I think, Right. They're like being really professional and like they, they uh-huh. place a kind of premium on the, the professionalness of it, not on the, like, we're, you know, nurturing these kids yeah. and we're like helping them to become, you know, empathetic thinkers or whatever. They're, they're just like, we, we do things like
0: correctly. Well, <laughs> well, right. But I think that represents their developmental task as mm-hmm you know, young teens, like their goal is autonomy at this point. Right. right. And so right. they're going to see it very differently. You know, I don't think that, Claudia would want to think about Mrs. Newton thinking that really Mimi's in charge in the background (laughs) and Claudia is another kid and like cares about her children. You know, this is about them building autonomy and building um, their own kind of identities and abilities in the marketplace, so to speak, or in the community. And so I don't think those are necessarily at odds. It's just different ways of looking at it. Like Mm -hmm. as the adult leaving your kid, you can feel comfortable that you're in this web of community, but as Claudia, like she's taking charge and she has this important job, mm-hmm. you know? and
1: she made 16 bucks. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so there were a lot of things that, um, that I noticed in this book, I, I, took a deep dive back into the psychology literature around this idea that, um, boys tease girls that they're interested in. Right. Oh, Cause this is the big part. Yeah, so this is a big running subplot. So Alan Gray likes Christy, and he's just, you know, being a jerk and teasing her, and that's the way he's showing it. Um, and there's actually really interesting literature on teasing well, wait, and, and kind of the nature of teasing. Literature, yeah. I
1: just want to point out that Christy says that that's something her mom tells her, too, which was like, right. uh, no, that, like, yeah. they're just teasing you because they like you. And I was like, yeah, I don't... That's
0: icky. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people find that idea icky. um, And there's a lot of, you know, the other piece of research I did, there's a lot of think pieces about that and about how that's really problematic, right? And we don't want to teach girls that because... They shouldn't put up with that kind of behavior, and people who like you should be kind to you, and we don't want to, like, put girls in a position of eventually being in an abusive relationship because they expect that boys who like them to tease them. Um, And this has been a big, you know, as a parent of two daughters, this has been a big cultural conversation over the last, I would say, five to ten years especially. Um, So there's pieces on, like, A Mighty Girl about it and a bunch of other websites. Um, But this hasn't actually been addressed at all in the developmental or social psych literature. So there's no, yeah, so there's no data showing any kind of link between cross-sex or cross-gender teasing in elementary and middle school and later involvement in abusive relationships. Oh, Yeah. Um, So there, there might, you know, that doesn't mean it's not there, but there's no data showing it. Um, And the data we have on teasing is really about uh, across many, many relationships the affiliative nature of teasing. So basically before kids are about nine or 10 teasing is something you do to be mean to somebody. Like you only tease out group members. And then, um, As we can observe among the three of us, when you cross that threshold of like 10, 11, 12, 13, it becomes something that people do to be affiliative, to to, um, reinforce bonds and relationships and reinforce closeness. Like if there's somebody at your job that you really didn't like, you wouldn't be like nice shoes, Carol, you know, like it would be like really aggressive and weird to do that. Right. But you would say, you know, both of you would say something like that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have really bad taste in shoes, you guys. Um, but so, and, and there's some amplification of some here. of these, <laughs> <laughs> there's some amplification of some of these things for, um, you know that it increases across um gender lines in middle school and things like that but this idea you know it seems that you know most kids bounce back from it well and and recognize it as being affiliative and and in fact girls tease boys at higher rates than boys tease girls interesting um, there's some data on that um so I was gonna ask it's, about it's, that yeah
1: i was thinking about the literature on like not not the sort of biological determinist view that, like, girls and boys form, like, bonds with other people, r- relational bonds differently, but just, you know, based on various kinds of social factors of nurturing and stuff like that. So I was wondering whether, like, that differential way, or, like, sort of relational um, development, like, whether that carries over
0: into teasing, but... Uh-huh. It seems like Yeah. That. So so yeah, it's it um I think it, they interact, right? They're mm-hmm. not um they're not totally uh orthogonal, like certainly Right, because if you if you're, yeah.
1: you're te- seeing teasing as affiliative and you have a more like relational sense of self, then like exactly. you might engage in practices of teasing more rather than
0: less. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so boys, um, you know, and Carol Gilligan for that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got a lot of articles if you want to link to them. Um, but that, and there's some, you know, there's some data on higher, how teasing differs in hierarchical relationships. So like Dacher Keltner at UC Berkeley in the, um, late nineties looked at like teasing in romantic partners compared to teasing in fraternity brothers. And the way like higher and lower status fraternity brothers teased each other was very different. Like the, the, um, lower status people who were teasing up, so to speak, did it in a more affiliative kind way than the like older brothers who were teasing down. Um, whereas in romantic partners, it tends to be more equitable. Um, but again, women tend to tease their romantic partners more than men and men tend to be more affiliative in the context of a heterosexual romantic relationship. Cause it's one of the only places where they're allowed to be that way is one of the hypotheses. Yeah. So, I just thought it was really interesting because it's, I, you know, on the face of it and in a like socio political way, I certainly don't want. My daughters to be like, oh yeah, this boy's being a dick, so he must like me, right? Like, I I get why that I get why that concept makes us like, oh, that's kind of yucky. But again, there's no, we don't have any data showing that it's actually problematic in the long term. And there's yeah. a lot of other things that predict people getting into romantic uh, abusive romantic relationships, and that's not one of them.
2: But also in this book, Christy Christy like fights back. A she lot. just isn't. Yeah, she just
0: doesn't take yeah. it. Right. But
2: here's
1: the thing, though. Are we supposed to think that she liked him before she knew that he liked her? Or is, right? Right. is she just saying, oh, oh, my mom was right. He does like me. I guess I'll feel sorry for him that he can't say it. And, you know, I don't know.
2: Yeah.
1: But, like, I'm, I'm unsure on how we're supposed to read her reaction to his, like, so- confession.
0: I think that Anna Martin was giving us some hints in chapter 10, which is probably my favorite chapter in this book. Um, After after our like five chapter run of babysitting jobs, which again, I know you guys were like, they're in service to the plot, so it's okay. But as I was reading, I was like, oh, Emily and Anna are not gonna like how many babysitting jobs there are in a row in this book. But at least creepy stuff is happening. (laughs) But chapter 10 is when, um, you know, it literally starts with a one, two word paragraph boy trouble. Um, and they're, and they're sitting around, um, at the babysitters club meeting and Christy just brings up Alan Gray out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And Claudia says, what made you think of Alan Gray? I asked, we'd been talking about Charlotte Johansson. And then she's like, everything makes me think about him. She said, throwing her hands in the air. He bothers me all the time, every single second of every single day. So Uh I, I felt like there was some foreshadowing that she's spending a lot of mental energy, like even Marianne says, he's not bothering you right now. Yes, he is. He bothers me just by living, you know, (laughs) which is, I think, you know, yeah, the sort of 12 year old Christie version of like, can't get him off of my mind kind of situation.
1: Right. But she doesn't know that she likes him yet. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Can we talk about how PG their dance was?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> they're like, we danced a little bit. Mostly, we drank lemonade. Also, we're bad dancers. And now I have a new friend. That <laughs> <Like, laughs> seems
3: about right. But yeah. I, don't, I don't, don't know.
1: Middle school was less PG yeah. than that. Oh, yeah, I, I, I,
0: think think I do think that our middle school was also less PG than that. And remember, there were like all kinds of rules about freaking freaking yeah. was really big when we were in middle school <laughs> same when i was in middle school <laughs> no freaking and there were teachers making kids stop freaking
1: they used to throw out these shirts that had two stick figures freak dancing and a, a like a <laughs> circle with an arrow through it that they would like throw at people that was in high school but
0: that's, really that's amazing Oh my gosh. I, don't
2: know, I remember our middle school be we pretty chaste. Like, I feel like we, my, well, my personal experiences were very innocent. Maybe other people's. Well, weren't.
0: right. Yeah, mine were too, exactly. I like, I, I think it's, you know, this is from the perspective of the babysitters club, right? So, like, we weren't freaking. Like, that we don't, they haven't told us about all of the students at Stony Brook Middle School at this dance, but yeah. I think that that's their experience of it. Yeah. You guys have any other psychology questions?
2: Oh yeah, I. um, Is it possible that Claudia had a learning disability since she is portrayed as being very? Absolutely. Like, what do you think? Like, dyslexic? Do you think? I mean, we don't really have a lot to go on. Yeah. But.
0: Yeah, we don't have a lot of data yet. Um, I would say, um, given how much she likes reading, dyslexia is sort of less likely to me because she doesn't like reading stuff for school. But um, if she had real dyslexia. So with the different um, decoding problems associated with dyslexia, um, lots of people think of dyslexia as just like letter reversals. Cause that's like the jokes about dyslexia. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it has a lot of, there's a lot of difficulties associated with decoding letters. I don't know that she would be able to get as much pleasure out of reading Nancy Drew as she does. Cause it's like really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, people with dyslexia do enjoy reading, but um, given that she's undiagnosed and she has, it doesn't seem like she's had, um, intervention for that, that seems less likely to me. Um, mm-hmm. I- I'm leaning toward ADHD actually, oh. um, inattentive type, uh, cause she's often daydreaming and like in this, uh, book, you know, she gets a spelling test back and she spells October wrong. And she specifically says, I know that it has a T in it and I just didn't write it. So it seems like she makes careless mistakes. Like mm-hmm. she's just not focusing and she's not slowing down enough. Um, her bad spelling doesn't necessarily indicate anything. There's been a bunch of studies that people that spelling is sort of a separate sort of strand of intelligence and people with really high intelligence who are very high achievers can be really bad spellers. So, um, in terms of her journal entries, Emily just raised her hand <laughs> for, her, for those of you at home. <laughs> so I in terms of her really journal entries, I'm not worried on about the that.
1: board in class. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm like two, thinking too and then I'm thinking Mm -hmm. ahead and then I look up at the board and I like left out three letters of words that I know how to spell. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So that's my running hypothesis now. ADHD is not technically a learning disability. It's a neurological difference um, where it's hard to keep your attention in the places that you want it. So a common misconception about ADHD is that people can't focus on anything, that it's like a literal attention deficit, but it's really a, a difficulty paying attention to tasks that require what's called sustained mental effort. And so it's basically, if it's not interesting to you, it's really hard to focus on. So people who have ADHD have less dopamine in their brains. Dopamine is like a pleasure neurotransmitter. And so they have a hard time shifting from things that actually give them dopamine. And so Claudia has got a lot of things that give her dopamine, right? Like art, Nancy Drew, Candy, she can Trevor do those Sanborn. things for a really long period of time. Trevor Sanborn, exactly. None of those are sustained mental effort. But when she needs to focus on math or, you know, history in school or other things that are less interesting to her, it's very hard for her to keep her attention in those places. So that's, my, that's that. my running hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone says that when you talk about sustained mental effort. I Look, have that. It's not... <laughs> it's not that anyone likes doing their taxes. It's just when you have ADHD, it's really, really, really hard to shift. And like boredom is very aversive. And so that's the other thing, Claudia, I think mentions being bored and, and really hating it a few different times. And so boredom is aversive. Like most people don't like feeling bored, but I often describe it for parents like, when you have ADHD boredom, is like, I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. Like, it's very aversive and painful.
1: Okay. I don't have that. Then. I was like me yesterday when I had a lot of, <laughs> of stuff I was supposed to be doing, but I didn't want to.
0: And I was yeah, just you're wealthy, chill around.
1: saying I'm bored. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Anne is chill with being bored. You yeah. don't have a problem with that, Anne.
2: No. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm literally
0: never bored.
2: Um, so also in this book, Claudia talks a lot about her relationship with her sister, Janine, who is a genius, has a very high IQ of 196, I believe. Um, and because yeah. it's like Claudia is an artist and Janine's like an academic, um, they are at odds with each other. And a lot of the book focuses on the relationship. And, you know, it's the Claudia talks about how they used to be close and now they're not anymore and they don't know how to relate to each other. And I guess I'm wondering like, is it, is it common for siblings to grow apart as I get older? Like, you know, my brother and I were, we have a pretty big age difference. So that's, this is hard for me
0: to kind of make it.
2: Uh-huh.
0: You know, What's an Claudia and situation? Janine's again? I think Janine is 15 and Claudia is 12. Yeah. Yeah. So they're pretty close. Uh-huh. Um, not as close as like you and Aaron, Emily, but fairly close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It You know, and you said you and your brother have a big age difference. so You don't have much to say about this, but not as big as me and my siblings. So That's true. <laughs> I don't have anything personal to say about this. I guess I'd like to hear Emily's perspective first, and then I can tell you kind of the, a little bit about the, the data and kind of typical yeah. developmental patterns. You know,
1: it's interesting because I'm thinking that I have a lot of friends who have close in age siblings and they tend to do, they tend to be really different And Aaron and I are very different temperamentally, but we liked all of the same things always. And we like played all the same sports. We were both like high achieving in the same areas. So like our, where we butted heads wasn't over like different worlds. It was like over different moods kind of like we were Mm -hmm. very, very close as small children. And then we started fighting a lot, a lot, a lot as adolescents and in and middle schoolers, especially like, there would have been a lot of Doors slamming and like a lot more anger <laughs> if if we were that age and we were subjects of that book and then we like we're on and off in high school we shared a lot of the same friends also we were like both in the same clubs we took the same foreign language like we just did all the same stuff But we both have like similar emotional intelligences but different temperaments and so we we would like get really frustrated over like not this is a cheesy way of thinking of thinking about it but like not speaking each other's love languages if that makes sense <laughs> so like. <laughs> We we would sometimes have trouble, like, getting to the root of, like, what was causing problems mm-hmm. between us. But, like, now mm-hmm. we're very close.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty common, um, that pattern that you describe, actually, Emily, of being close, like, when you're two or three years apart, being close as littler kids, and then kind of drifting apart in middle, early high school, and then coming back together again, end of high school, college, adulthood, that kind of thing. So I think that that's pretty common. But I also think it's very... Um, difficult for kids that if there's one sibling that's like very special in a certain way whether it's like being super smart or excelling in sports or you know insert special talent here to be the like regular kid I think is really challenging and that's the the spot that Claudia finds herself in but of course Janine doesn't want to be there either
2: It doesn't but Claudia has her own special talent but it's not like she's right, you know right,
0: but we've talked about how that's not recognized in her family in the same way. Like mm-hmm. we talked about that a little bit last time. So yes. I, I don't, you know, it's not prized in the same manner, or at least in Claudia's perception. We don't actually know what Mr. and Mrs. Kishi think. Certainly Mimi's um values her, but mm-hmm. Claudia has a lot of assumptions about what Janine and her parents think about her.
1: I loved the scenes of Mimi sitting for her portrait. Oh, so
0: good. So good, so well written. Yeah. When she's yeah, like trying to
1: capture the twinkle in her eye, yeah, Yeah. <laughs>
0: her wisdom.
1: That was one thing yes. I was like, wait, is this a, a, a like cultural signifier here? We're supposed to think of right. her as wise because
0: she's Japanese yeah, or she's what? An old Asian woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did it read like that to you, Anne?
2: Um, a little bit, but I think it's you know accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Fair enough. I'm also trying <laughs> to
2: do like the math on. um. Like Claudia's parents, like what year they were born and stuff like that. So, because she mentioned that they came to the US when her, both of her parents were very small children. Yeah. So, if Claudia is 12 or 13 or in 1986, mm-hmm.
0: that means she was born in. She's 12 and 86. So, she was born in 74. Yeah, and then that means so. And so, so Janine was born in seventy-two. Mm-hmm. So then, at the at the latest, they probably yeah. came here in sixty-two. Yeah, but which it was probably means, before, after the internment camps. Yeah, yeah, but they would have missed that.
2: Which means Mimi was in Japan during
0: during the war. Which uh-huh. is yeah.
2: Whoa. Why she why she left I don't know it, it just like when she started doing that mm-hmm. I was like oh I wonder like like put that the actual like timeline of things is mm-hmm. and like why she moved yeah. here like was it because you know she lived somewhere that was affected by like mm-hmm. you know what if she lived like near Hiroshima or like I don't know like it just was yeah. interesting um yeah. to think
1: about do we get any
0: backstory later I don't remember. Uh, I don't think we do in the actual books, but there's those uh, portrait collection books. So there's like Claudia's book. And I think it goes into backstory of her parents and Mimi. Yeah. Um, but did, that's did not you, for a while. Uh, did you read that? Yeah. yeah. But, like, did it but not since the 90s. Do you remember? Okay. I, I haven't read it since then. No, okay. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't just remember record. everything you, you read in the it 90s. Tropical. No, I don't. Sadly, I wish I did. That would be very convenient. I All also right. loved Nancy Drew. Yeah, I didn't, I don't know if I didn't love it because my mom liked it or because I just didn't try hard enough. I thought it was kind of boring. Grandma's going to listen mm-hmm. to this. Be careful. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, she knows. I'm the mean one. It's fine. <laughs> and what, 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 uh, what pop culture did you, did, popped out in this book? It seemed like there were some more actual references to real life things. Yeah, it
2: was interesting. There was like
0: half fake
2: references and
0: half real
2: references. Um, like they mentioned the Muppet Show, they mentioned MTV, of course, they mentioned Nancy Drew, I Love Lucy. Um, but then, uh, but then there's like made up stuff, like Spook Mm -hmm. Theater or something they watched, and that's like not a thing. And I'm then also, sure it's
1: not
2: a then <laughs> I, I looked it up. I mean, it could be it could be a thing, but I don't think it was a real show in the 80s. Um, and then the band uh, that Charlie listens to that Marianne like uses the tape from was like pound in down the walls by the Slime that, Kings. Was so that okay. really like <laughs> I appreciated um Anna Martin's? Yeah. Like, I feel like she put a lot of thought into the name of that mm-hmm. song and also the name of the band. Yeah, for sure. Like
0: I, 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 this just occurred to me, but I might be able to get Gary to write like 10 seconds of Pounding Down the Walls by the Slime Kings and record it for oh, yeah. us if we wanted to. Do. Yes, for sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs>
2: okay. But it's also just like, I like the idea of like Charlie, we get an idea of like Charlie's musical taste just from that one mention. Yeah
1: um wait wh- why do you think she did that do like half real and half fake
2: i don't know it is it's interesting though right i was surprised that she like even said i love lucy really i was like oh right. like you know i was like that's interesting but i did take note of in what chapters of what character these mentions took place so like it was Marianne mm-hmm. was watching I Love Lucy, which seems very on brand for her. Mm-hmm. And then Claudia, I think Claudia was watching The Muppet Show. Um, um, then, wasn't it?
0: Wasn't it Charlotte Johansson? Oh no! Oh it? no! Claudia was watching it with the Marshall kids. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. And then uh, Stacy with Charlotte was like, "Let's watch MTV and like listen to some good yeah, music." Sure.
1: But they didn't have cable. Where's they your box? cable box? Wait, this is where, this is where the thing that I don't know came up. What, what was the thing you don't know? What is UHF? <laughs> oh,
2: jeez. <laughs> well, there's, like oh, there's like a double sadness to that because you don't know what UHF <laughs> is really, but also you don't know the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't
0: know. There's double sadness. <laughs> it's it's okay. Go ahead, Anne. Schooler. Teacher.
2: What UHF <laughs> is?
0: I mean, I don't oh, even yeah. know
2: what it stands for. I just know that it like existed. It's like a well. it first, was a uh, weird Al Yankovic movie. That's like the second meaning of it. it was like, yeah. do you know who like Weird Al is? I'm like, yes, I <laughs> <laughs> <I've> watch TV. <laughs> okay Okay, i'm also going to look up to see okay so uhf stands for ultra high frequency and it was a tv it was like a tv channel you could turn to
3: it was so basically
0: yeah Yeah. so there i think the lower frequencies are vhf i'm not sure what that stands for but basically like the you know pre-cable the main channels like in sacramento and the main channels were 3 10 and 13 uh-huh. Those were like the ABC, CBS, and NBC. And then there was channel 31 and channel 48. Uh-huh. And those were the UHF channels. There's literally like when you had a TV with a dial, it said UHF. Uh-huh. And you would turn to that section. And they, they were the higher channels. They were like the things that then eventually turned into like the WB and the CW. Yeah. It was like...
2: Oh, my
1: favorite. The, 20...
0: Yeah. <laughs> <I'm>
2: Emily, <like>, remember <laughs> at, so, at yeah. Esme's house, they had that TV in their kitchen for a long time. That small one. Do you remember? It was like yeah, on it was just like an ancient artifact. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it worked. So like, it had 3, 10, 13, and UHF.
2: Yeah yeah
1: there's a lot of ancient artifacts in grandma's house Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah. so basically what they're saying is they checked like all the channels not just the main channels yeah and so so, like it would be a lot of like syndication and reruns were on the uhf channels Mm -hmm. sorry ann what were you gonna say oh it was
2: 31 in sacramento 31 40
0: and 58 Oh, thank you. You're right. I can't believe yeah. I conflated those two. <laughs> yes, 31, 40, and 58. Yes, yeah. 58, I think 40 like, had that was the lowest rent one. Yeah, I think 40 yeah. had like Gilligan's Island and Green Acres yeah. and stuff during the day when you were in school. Fox, I
2: believe.
0: Yes. Like, used and, to watch, yeah. So you would you watch the Simpsons on 40? Yeah, right? the Simpsons was on 40. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we've got into like a of the, the podcast that I one cares about. Yeah.
2: That
0: <laughs> I mean, probably people that grew up in Sacramento in the 80s and 90s are grooving, but that's probably a small proportion of our audience. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all of it. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I also took wrote down all of Claudia's candies. Oh, great. So, um, let's get a yay or nay from you guys on your opinion.
0: Oh, like a, we, a up or yeah. down? Okay. Licorice
2: whips. I'm pro-redvine, Red Vine, but...
1: Yeah, but
0: I- I feel like the red licorice whips are like red vine flavored.
2: Yeah. I, okay. would, I mean, the Twizzlers exist then.
0: I think so. but so I don't know. They, on the, in the East coast, it's probably a Twizzler. I don't know. Exactly. I feel like red vines are very
2: yeah. West coast
0: specific. I think they're actually from the Midwest originally. Cause Gary and I have had this argument oh. as a Californian married to a New Yorker. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's true. So if if they were like red vine based, but she called them licorice whips. She didn't I mean she didn't call them twizzlers. Right. So. there was
2: a copyright issue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, root, root beer barrels.
2: Which I'm a fan of.
0: Down. Really? Oh yeah. I love this. Ugh.
1: What are those? Are they like
0: gummy
2: candies? Yeah, no, it's like hard root candy. beer flavor?
0: They're oh, hard yeah, candy. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, I love this. <laughs> They're like, like <laughs> barrels. They're cool.
1: Ne- I mean, I've never had one. It just sounds like something I wouldn't enjoy. Oh it goodness. tastes like
0: root beer. <sighs>
2: I like a root beer float. Yeah, then you'll like root beer barrels. I don't know. Okay. So, um, a, a gigantic <laughs> chocolate bar, which is just kind of generic, but good. Sure. I don't know. Um, I this one. Long. And I'll get enthusiastic <laughs> thumbs up from Esme on this one. Saltwater mm-hmm.
1: taffy. Pro. Yes, pro. Do you guys have the same
2: candy taste? Pretty much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
0: And then the last one was MMs, M&Ms, which are...
1: Mm. I'm pro. I'm anti. interesting. I also like like peanut butter M&Ms.
0: Yeah, I don't like any of those things. And I've
1: been told that you can't like both, that you have to either only like peanut butter (laughs) or peanut, and I think that's wrong. That is silly. It's an incorrect opinion. Yeah, Yeah, so those were...
0: The five mentions of, okay. of Claudia's candy. It's not as many as I would have thought, given that it's a Claudia. I, know. Book.
1: I
2: thought,
1: I guess, yeah. the, you know, the mystery just, you she know, was over really
0: distracted me. by Trevor Sanborn. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about the big reveal that Janine also hides candy in her room. Oh, I had yeah. forgotten
1: that. Yeah. I really so liked that. that I made feel me really like
2: happy. we should reenact how that conversation went between Janine and Claudia, but we can just kind of wing it. Oh, or you guys could, pr- we could do
1: another dramatic reading. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, All right. You obviously want to be Claudia, right? Right, Anne? it's hard to end. Let's see. Yeah, it's in chapter 14. Oh, here it is. Okay, 144. I'm glad you let me come in and talk. Me too, I said. Maybe we could do this more often? Janine sounded a bit timid. Sure.
2: I have a lot of other candy hidden around my room.
0: Janine smiled. I'll tell you a secret. I do, too. You do? Mm-hmm. It's my vice. I wasn't sure what a vice was, but I wasn't about to ask. I didn't know that. There are a lot of things you don't know about me. Same here. And Insane. And That was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. I love that. Okay, let me let me back us up to our trope count. So, um, I had a new one that came up a couple times in this book that I wanted to see if you guys wanted me to start counting. It didn't come up in the first one because it was a Christy book and it was babyish. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. babyish came up three times in this book um, about either Christy or Marianne. It depended. Um, so that was that was by far the most common one for Claudia to use. She did call Christy bossy once. She called Marianne shy twice. And she called Stacy sophisticated once. She did not, no surprise, refer to herself as exotic. <laughs> um, so, um, depending on whether or not we count ba- babyish, that brings our Marianne is shy total to four for the series. Christy is bossy to two. And Stacy is sophisticated to three. I think babyish
1: is worth keeping track of because I'd be curious to see whether. That changes, or whether they yeah. remain
0: babyish forever. My guess is that it fades out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can certainly track it for the next few and see where it goes. Um, as in terms of like social justice concerns, I think we already covered them. I was, you know, worried about Christie's child abuse threat and about Alan Gray not getting shot uh, by, by the police um alan gray getting such a nice easy easy warning um as this nice nice uh white young gentleman but to ann's point i d- you know i don't want anyone to get shot by the police so right. it's not not that i wanted alan gray to get shot by the police no
1: but the uh, the the issue is like how the role the police play
0: and like their confidence
1: exactly. and exactly. feeling safe
0: with the police yeah and then there, the default whiteness of stony brook i feel like is a character in all of the books um <laughs> but we'll, we'll go from there.
2: Okay, so what was everyone's favorite line from the book? I feel like I had a couple, but they weren't really, like, essential to the plot. I just thought they were funny, and mm-hmm. I remember as a kid just, like, remembering this line specifically. <laughs> but it's oh, when... I think I know what it is. I don't... Yeah. Really? No, I don't think so. I don't know. Okay. But, what is it? Um, it's, it's when David Michael is sick, and he just says... Uh-huh. He calls Marianne period, like period. <laughs> <laughs> That's so dumb. But I just, yeah. I just really yeah. remember, I was like, oh my God, I remember thinking that was like hilarious,
0: period. <laughs> the line I thought you were going to say, which is my very favorite, um, mm-hmm. is, is not that weird in and of itself, but really signifies this book to me and, and what I'll always associate with this book, which is, have you found my red ribbon? <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> their code that they make up to call the police so that the burglar doesn't know they're calling the police i like um, that i can remember it yeah there's this whole scene where they're trying to rehearse this like three-part code and they can't do it right and they're so like just scaring themselves
2: yeah um i, so. I like that scene a lot
0: yeah and it also so made me
2: that, very, it also made me very frustrated to read that scene i was like you guys <laughs> come on get it together it's not that hard, it's not <laughs> that hard.
1: Um, I really like when Marianne's trying to quit the club because she's not going to be able to pay her dues. And uh-huh. they're like, don't worry about that. Babysitters stick together. And then Stacey says, through phantoms and power failures.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. That's- so the... The other two that I wrote down that I thought were just silly was they're reading the headlines of the Stony Brook News at the beginning. And one of the headlines is An Angry Pig Goes Hog Wild. Um, oh and I just thought that was really silly. And then later, much later in the book, um, Claudia's talking about someone's face falling and she says, Faster than a ruined souffle. Oh my God. <laughs> Which I thought was like, first of all, but Claudia wouldn't say that. And, like, how did, like, I don't think I even know that much about souffles. Like, I just feel like 12 year olds. Like, I just. I, I just did not know it. what a souffle was when I was yeah.
2: 12. <laughs> no. I
1: like when Rob says, hey, do we get cookie surprises or what? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> or what? It's great. Oh, I also, wait, one more line I like it's when they're describing that boy in the lunch line and he says, "His he's known to say, no frontsees, no back Yeah. Oh, I like that. No front frontsees, <laughs> no, <fronties>, no backsees. <laughs> it's like, no, you just can't cut at all. Not in front or in the back.
0: Oh my God. They're all really good. I'm, I, if, if, if no front sees, no back sees calls to you, Emily, I'm okay with that. It really does. I, I missed that in the, in my read through
1: and I, it it brings me great joy. (laughs) Okay.
0: All right. Is that okay with you, Anne?
1: Yep. Let's do it. All
0: right. Done. Okay. What should we pizza toast
1: to? Oh man. We could pizza toast for justice for the phantom. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> i i was thinking about how um the let you know. Him go <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking about how anna martin is really good at writing spooky stuff i was actually pretty Wait, impressed. last time I know, I know, but like like a, a good spooky read, like it was spookier than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to remember it as being scary as a nine-year-old and then be like, what did I think was scary? But it's actually pretty spooky. I don't know. Has, have you ever read anything scary before?
1: <laughs> justice for the Phantom. I have to get justice. Justice for the Phantom because it's very right, right. scary. <laughs> I'm sensitive. Okay. (laughs) All right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look. I don't need your snide, California, sense of humor dawn. Okay. 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 So are you gonna lead us in our pizza
1: toast? Oh yeah. Okay. So let's pizza
2: toast to Justice for the Phantom.
0: Justice for the Phantom.
2: Phantom. (laughs) Go go to his GoFundMe page. (laughs) Backslash (laughs) Phantom.
0: All right, you guys, this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned.
1: A special thank you to the Lovebots for this version of the Slime Kings pounded down the walls. Check out more music from the Lovebots on iTunes.
2: Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl can ask for.